You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, Colossians. It's four chapters, 95 verses, 1,979 words, all packaged up by God as a gift to you and me. That's the letter of Colossians. It starts like this in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So in some ways, this just helps us set the context for the letter. Colossians is part of what is known as the prison epistles, the the prison letters. So Paul is writing this letter. I mean, just think about this. He's writing from prison. That's where he's authoring this letter. This is why at the end of of this letter, uh, he says, remember my chains. He's writing from prison. Now, unlike many of the New Testament churches, Paul did not plant this church in Colossae. It was planted by Epaphras. And Epaphras likely came to Ephesus uh, during Paul's ministry there and was likely uh, converted. He met Jesus at Ephesus, then went back to his hometown, Colossae, and planted this church, the, the church in Colossae. And now what's happened is Epaphras, the pastor of the church, he has come to Paul in prison and he's giving an update to Paul. He's telling Paul, here are the good things going on in the church, and here are the not-so-good things. He's giving the report. And here is part of the bad happening at the church in Colossae. There was a group of new preachers who had come into the church, and they were preaching a different message. But it was subtle. It wasn't overtly, uh, you know, wrong. Uh, it was, they were coming in, and here's what they were doing. They, they weren't denying the person of Jesus. Um, they were just preaching in such a way where they were adding to Jesus. So maybe you could think of it this way. Um, they're looking at the church, and they're saying, uh, do you want fullness in your life? And like they would say, we would say, well, of course we want fullness. Um, they were looking at the church and saying, do you want freedom in your life? And they, just like we, were answering back, well, of course we want uh, freedom. Yes, all of our hearts are longing for fullness and freedom. And they were teaching the church, well, okay, if, if that's what you want, here's what you need. Jesus plus fill in the blank. Jesus plus something. Now, for these uh, preachers, it was Jesus plus asceticism, like a strict and rigorous sort of self-denial of the body. It was Jesus plus um, some worship of angels. It was Jesus plus, maybe you can think of like their teaching like this. It was Jesus plus a mixture of some pagan sort of beliefs in the area combined with some Jewish traditionalism. It's Jesus plus that mixture of things, and then you're going to have the freedom and fullness that you really crave and want in life. Now, the reason Paul wrote this letter is to respond to that. He's looking at this young church, and he is saying to them, never put anything in the blank next to Jesus. Don't put anything in the blank. He's looking at them and saying, freedom and fullness is not found in Jesus plus something. It's found in Jesus alone. 
That's Colossians. Now, it's so interesting when you read this uh, book, though, this letter. Uh, to correct the problem that is uh, in the church, Paul doesn't really even focus on the problem. He, he doesn't say, well, let me like highlight the problem. Let me spend four chapters dealing with the problem. Paul's strategy to deal with the problem is just lifting up 95 verses of lifting up the person of Jesus. That's, that's his strategy. This is what he's doing in the book. He is saying, hey, you've got a problem. There's a little bit of heresy creeping into the church, so let me solve it this way. Can we all spend four chapters gazing at the person of Jesus together? That, that's Colossians. I love what one commentator said. He said, when, when you study Paul's epistles, we see that each letter has a dominant theme. So in Romans, it's justification by faith. In Ephesians, it's the mystery of Christ and his church. In Philippians, it's the joy that Jesus brings. In Colossians, though, he says, it's the absolute, absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's the theme of Colossians. Now, if, if I were just trying to give, uh, in a simple summary statement, why are we walking through this letter together over the next few months? This would be my simple summary so that we can have ample time together to gaze upon the person of Jesus. That's why. This Jesus who Paul says is above all things, before all things, better than all things, it's to gaze upon the person of Jesus. Paul is writing to convince or reconvince our hearts that Jesus really is over everything. And oh, that God would use the next few months together as we walk through this letter, oh, that he would use it to convince us that the freedom and fullness we all want and we all crave, it's not found in Jesus plus anything else. It is found in the person of Jesus alone. Oh, that he would do that for us. So today, we're going to cover the first 14 verses. The first 14 verses. Now, these uh, opening verses uh, kind of come in two parts. Two parts. Uh, part one is how to praise others. Part two is how to pray for others. This is what Paul is going to show us in the opening 14 verses. How to praise others and then how to pray for others. So let's take part one. Movement one, how to praise others. If you read through Paul's letters, one of the amazing things you're going to discover is that he is unbelievable uh, in his affirmation of people. I, I, I would say it this way. Paul is a pro at praise. He is really good at it. He is a great affirmer. He, is, he commends the commendable. When he sees the grace of God at work in a human life, he says it to that person. What he sees, he goes on to say. Take uh, 1 Corinthians as an example of this. The, the church in Corinth was so jacked up, Paul could have spent all 16 chapters, the entire letter, just correcting the church. There was a lot of correcting that needed to be done in that church. But that's not what he does. He starts the letter out by saying, hey, I see some evidence of the Lord's grace in your life, and what I see, I want to say to you. 
I want to make sure you're aware of. Paul is just a wonderful affirmer of people. Now, why can Paul do that? I think this is the reason. Um, Paul makes it a habit in his life of seeing what's beautiful in a person before he focuses on what's broken in them. Beauty before brokenness. Now, think about your own life and how that works in your own life. Do you do that in your own life? Paul is great at this. We're all really broken, aren't we? There's not a person in this room who is not incredibly broken. But Paul, before he sees brokenness in that person or in a church, he sees the beauty in them, how God is at work in them, the unique ways that they reflect the image of God. He sees beauty before brokenness. So it's not surprising that we would hear Paul say something like this in Romans 12. Hey, outdo one another in giving honor. Paul is inviting godly competition here. Hey, will you compete with one another in a godly way of commending the commendable? In finding grace in people's lives and in what you see saying that to them? Would you have a little godly competition among yourselves of affirming right things in people, not flattering them, not speaking lies to them, but evidence of grace that you see saying that to them? Will you outdo one another in giving honor? So it's no surprise when you get to the end of this letter that Paul spends the last chapter affirming his co-laborers in ministry, those who are in ministry beside him. Uh, or it's no surprise that at the beginning of the letter, Paul doesn't start by addressing problems, but by praising people. This is how Paul starts, just affirming this church, uh, praising them. Now, again, think about your own relationships for a moment. Do you have a tendency to see people's brokenness before you see their beauty? Do you make a habit of affirming people? Think about the, the difficult relationships in your life. I mean, the people you kind of have a problem with. Do you see their brokenness before their beauty, the unique ways that God is at work in them, the unique ways that they reflect the image of God in their life? Do you see their beauty before their brokenness? Now, watch how Paul praises them. He starts out by saying, you're genuine. There is a genuine love of Jesus in your heart. So uh, look at verses three through five. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, you might uh, take those couple of verses and underline faith, underline love and underline hope. Uh, commentators are quick to point out when those three words are all coming together to describe a person, a church, a group of people, it is sort of New Testament shorthand to say they're the real deal. When faith, hope, and love are at work in a person's life, that, that is the Bible's way of saying, yep, they are the genuine article. They, they are real. There is a genuine love of Jesus in their heart. And this is what Paul's saying here. You, you are genuine. He, he's saying you have faith in Jesus. Um, what is faith? I love how John Patton, he was a missionary to what is now uh, current day Myanmar, and he was trying to translate the Bible into a common vernacular of, of, that, of those people. 
And when he was doing that, he was searching for the word uh, or the phrase that would help convey what is faith, what is belief, and uh, here is what he found in that search. Here was the the way he translated it and described it. He said that, that word faith or belief in the Bible, it means to lean your whole weight upon. To lean your whole weight upon. I love that. This is what faith is. Faith in Jesus is leaning your whole weight upon Jesus. It's pushing the entirety of your life in with Jesus. And Paul's saying, you're doing that, church. You have faith in Jesus. And then he says, and I see your love for the saints. Paul's looking at the church and saying, I can tell that you love one another. It's a love that is inconveniencing you. You're going out of your way to make other people's problems your problem. Church, I can see that that love of Jesus in you. I can see your faith. I can see your love. And he says, I can see that you have this forward-looking hope. Your hope is not just bound up in this life. No, your hope is being laid up in the next life. I can see that forward-leaning hope. This is Paul's way of saying, church, I can see the reality of God in your life. Jesus is not just abstract and theoretical for you. No, he has made a home and he has become real to you. He's affirming them, saying you're genuine followers of Jesus, so stay after it, keep chasing, keep pursuing, keep running after him. He says, you're genuine. And then he affirms him by saying, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's growing in you. It's doing things in you. Look at verses five and six. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Verse six, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. And here's what it's doing. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. He's saying, yes, the gospel is increasing and growing across the world, and it is doing that in you. Now, think about what uh, the imagery he's using here. He is taking the gospel, and then he's taking the metaphor of a seed. And he's saying, I want you to picture the good news of Jesus as this seed. And that seed is growing, and it's bearing fruit, and it's increasing, yes, in the world and in you. It's actually changing you, church. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I, I can tell that it's conforming you into the image of Jesus. It's, it's, it's shaping you and molding you and growing in you, producing all sorts of fruit in you, church. They're being changed by Jesus, and Paul wants them to know that. Now, how does the good news of Jesus change us? Paul shows us in verse 6. In verse 6, he says, Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So there is a hearing element and an understanding element. And understanding is more than just, I get the X's and O's of it. Understanding it is, it's becoming real to your heart. It's coming down deep into your soul. I I heard it and it's deepening in me. I'm understanding more and more of it. It's becoming more and more real to me. Uh, Maybe you could picture it this way. The human heart is a multi-layered, complex thing. 
And if you were to picture your heart as a 100-story skyscraper, it's a huge, multi-floored building. At the moment of conversion, here is what happens. God rips the roof off of the building, and the water of the gospel floods into that top floor of your heart, soaking and saturating everything. By the way, it's raining really loud, isn't it? <clears throat> Just want to acknowledge the elephant in the room. Uh, in the first service, it rained so hard that I know Jesus promised in Genesis 6 he wasn't going to flood us again, but I was wondering there for a moment. So it is hard to preach in a context like this, and it's even more difficult to listen well. So we're all going to have to be in this together. Amen? Okay. So at conversion, God rips the roof off of the building. The water of the gospel gushes in and soaks and saturates every part of that first floor. Now here is the journey of growth as a Christian. God then comes in through a million different providences. He has a million different ways of doing this. And the next floor of the building, the 99th floor, it's a watertight floor. But, but God has a way of coming in and cracking the floor in such a way where the water gushes down a floor, down a story, into the next story, of, next floor of your heart. And then over and over again throughout your life, this is the journey that you're on. God cracking another floor and the water of the gospel gushing into that one. Another floor, the water of the gospel gushing into that one. That's what it means to hear and then to understand more and more of the gospel. This is the way you change. It's the way I change. We change by more of Jesus getting into more and more and more and more of our hearts. That's the journey of change. They're hearing and they're understanding the gospel. And Paul's commending them. He's affirming them. He says, you may not be able to see your growth, church, but I can see your growth. You may not be able to recognize that you're, you're really different than the last time that I heard about you, but, but I, I know you're different. I can see and recognize that you're different. He's commending them. He's encouraging them. He's, he's just reminding them that the gospel is transforming them. It's making them more and more like the person of Jesus. Now, let me just pause here, and uh, let's just apply this, this moment in this letter. Who do you need to write a letter like that to? Just seeing the grace of God at work in their life and affirming that in them. Just seeing what the Lord's up to and, and what you see, you're, you're just saying, you're not... It's not flattery. You're not lying to them. You're, you're just committed to noticing what God is up to, and then you're saying that to them. I, I can see the Lord working in you like this. Uh, if you're a husband in the room, make sure you look at me here. Make it your goal to be the most affirming voice in the life of your wife. If you're a parent in the room, Make it your goal to be the most affirming voice in the life of your friends. If you have friends, hopefully we do, right? Make it your goal to be the most affirming voice in the life of your friends. This is one thing we can see in Paul. We can imitate in Paul. When Paul says, imitate me for I imitate Christ, this is one very imitatable reality in Paul's life that is amazing. If you lead a group around Stonegate, you ought to just make it a regular rhythm and habit. Make your next large group meeting. Just taking five to 10 minutes, pick one person out in your group, them, and we're all going to go around and affirm that person. 
just practicing affirmation, outdoing one another and showing honor, seeing the grace of God at work in a person's life and then saying what we see. Church, may we grow in this, amen? The ability to praise and affirm and commend commendable things in people. Part one, how to praise others. Part two, how to pray for others. How to pray for others. The single greatest thing you can do for a friend, for those in your family, for those in your church family, the single greatest thing you can do is to pray for them. Is to pray for them. To talk to God on their behalf. And when we do that, we want to pray in a way that God likes, right? We want to pray in alignment with God for the things he would want us to pray for. We want to pray in a way that pleases God for other people. And if you want to know how to do that, Paul's giving us an illustration. Colossians 1 is a great place to turn and just say, I'm going to pray like Paul prays here. I'm going to go and talk to God on their behalf like Paul goes and talks to God on their behalf. He does a, he's such a, just a great model and an example for us here. Look at verse 9. Paul says this, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. He's just praying all the time for these churches, and in particular this one. And here's what he asks. It says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him. What is Paul praying for here? Paul is praying for our life to reflect the one we love. This is what Paul is praying for this church, for their life to reflect the one they love, for your life to reflect the one you love, for our life as a church to reflect the one we love. That God would help us by his grace walk in a way that would be worthy of Jesus, fully pleasing to Jesus. That walk is a way of saying to live, that, that we would live like that, right? And, and Paul is aware here that we're gonna need some help from God to do that. We're gonna need a real awareness of what does it look like to please the Lord. We're gonna need spiritual wisdom and understanding if we're going to, to live in a way that reflects the one that we love. So what does that look like? To walk worthy. What does it look like for our life to reflect the one we love? Well, Paul shows us four things in this text. Four things. I just want to run through these really briefly. Uh, first is he says, if you, want to, if you want to live in a way that reflects the one you love, it means bearing fruit. Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. What is fully pleasing to him? Bearing fruit in every good work. Church, it's amazing to think that before there was such a thing as time, God created good works for our church to do. And according to Ephesians 2.10, good works for you to do. And, and your good works are not the same as the person beside you. These, these are specifically designed things that God said, no, this is your race that you're running. This is what I have for you. Not them, but, but you. This is the story that I'm writing in your life. I have planned good works in particular for your life. And there is nothing more meaningful in our life than when we give our lives to the very good works that Jesus has called us to. That we say yes to every one of those good works. 
every single thing that God would ask, we say yes. Every good work that he would put in our path, we say yes to that. Bearing fruit, fruit that will last through this life to the life to come. For our life to reflect the one we love, we bear fruit. It's all about bearing fruit. And then he goes on. It's not just bearing fruit. It's also knowing God. This is what it looks like to live in a way that reflects the one we love. Knowing God. Look at what he says in verse 10. Yeah, I I want you to live fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, knowledge is not just, I'm learning more about the X's and O's of God, although that is a good thing. It's it's that and some. It's, yes, I'm knowing more about God, but I'm actually knowing God. But Paul is saying this is what it looks like for you to live in a way that reflects the one you love. Know God. Give your life to knowing God. Your heart is like a vast universe. There are so many galaxies in your heart that are unexplored, parts of our hearts that just we don't even know exist. It is like a vast universe. And here's part of what that means for all of us in the room. We will never be able to take some of God's gifts, stuff them into our hearts, and our hearts be satisfied. Um, You're not gonna find enough money to satisfy your heart. You're not gonna find a nice enough house to satisfy your heart, a good enough car, enough achievements, enough fame. You're never going to find enough of God's gifts to ever satisfy your heart. Your heart is so vast that it requires the maker of the universe to satisfy it, God. So Paul says, if you wanna live in a way that reflects God, here's what you have to give your life to, knowing God filling your heart with the person of God, knowing God. What does it look like for our life to reflect the one we love, bearing fruit, knowing God? And then thirdly, Paul says it it means joyful endurance. Joyful endurance. Look at verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Friends, it is not how you start a race that matters, it's how you finish it. It is not how you start the Christian life that matters, it's how you finish the Christian life that matters. And for any of us to finish well, to not just absolutely blow up our lives and wreck our faith, for us to finish well requires endurance. It requires endurance. Following Jesus is hard, isn't it? This is, by the way, why Jesus says, hey, before you come and follow me, um, you might want to count the cost because it's going to be hard. Come and follow me. Uh, This is why Jesus' metaphor for conversion, when he's describing what it looks like to come to him, he says, if you want to do that, then you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to bear some crosses. In other words, you're going to have to make a regular practice of dying in your life. Like every day is going to be sort of a daily death for you. This is part of what it means to come after me and and follow me. You're going to have to make a a regular habit of saying no to your flesh and to temptations. You're going to have to consistently side against yourself and for me. So it's going to be hard. It's going to be so hard that it actually requires endurance. A few months ago, I was sitting with uh, just a faithful brother, a friend of mine who is struggling through same-sex attraction. 
And I just had the chance of listening to some of just the unique difficulties that means for him. Uh, the unique sort of battles that come along as he's fighting temptation and saying yes to Jesus. And then we just took some time to just plead for endurance, to ask the Lord for endurance. We, we prayed for endurance because endurance really does require a work of God in our life. This is why Paul prays in verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. Without that strengthening from the Spirit of God, there is no endurance in your life. There is no patience in your life and mine. It requires God to do the daily work of strengthening us so that we can endure and exercise patience in our life. Now look at the last two words of verse 11. For all endurance and patience with what? With joy. With joy. So God is not after any type of endurance. He's after a particular type of endurance. And it is an endurance marked by joy. When you sign up for following Jesus, you are saying yes to the loss of many things. It will cost you a, a thousand things in your life. It's going to cost you some money. It's going to cost you some friendships. It's going to cost you um, some of your coolness. It's going to cost you some of your reputation. It's going to cost you a lot of things in your life. But here's one thing it will not cost you. Joy. It doesn't cost joy. Take Paul as a for instance. Paul is writing from a prison yet he still has joy. His, his endurance, or his joy, endures something even as terrible as being jailed, prison. It, it, joy is that durable in the Christian life. It, it's a joy that, that cannot be killed. Uh, Paul's life is a great example of this. Suffering didn't kill Paul's joy. Shipwrecks didn't kill Paul's joy. Being beaten and left for dead that's a bad day, isn't it? That didn't kill Paul's joy. Ongoing battles with sin and temptation didn't kill Paul's joy. Even death itself couldn't kill Paul's joy. It's an enduring joy. It's, a, it's an endurance marked by joy. Here's part of what Paul's life shows us. That when Jesus rescues us, he, he joins together joy on one side and endurance. He joins these two together in a lifelong marriage. And those two things, joy and endurance, never need separate. It is an endurance that is marked by joy. And, and I know enough of the stories in this room where endurance is hard right now. Life is so difficult. Suffering is so intense. And we, just as a church family, are praying for you right now that God would strengthen you. By, the by his glorious might, he would strengthen you for all endurance and patience with joy. What, what does it look like for our life to reflect the one we love? Bearing fruit, knowing God, a joyful endurance. And then he finishes here, and we'll finish here. Fourthly, he says, by giving thanks. By being a person who habitually, in an ongoing way, just you can't help it. It's just always 
giving thanks. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father. When is the last time you just paused in your life and just thanked God for the many gifts that he's given you? Just just thanked him. Just looked at God and said, I, I am so thankful for this. I am so thankful for that gift. So thankful for the way you've answered that prayer been at work in my life like this, just just looking at your dad who's given you a thousand gifts like yesterday and just stop to thank him for it. What do we have to be thankful for? Look at what Paul says here. Giving thanks to the father who, who has qualified you. He's qualified you. It is as if an application has been sent up to God and your name's on the application. And because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God looks at that application, your application. He says, done. Yes. They they are qualified. They they are in with me. Yes to them. They they are qualified because of my beloved son, Jesus. Qualified for what? To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That is a good day when you're qualified for that. That's an amazing day. There is a day coming when God is going to take this broken down and beaten up world and make it new again. It's Revelation 21. It's a new heavens and a new earth. It is a world that we won't even need the sun in this world because God will be our light. It is a world full of of wonder and amazement and life. You know everything you want this world to be, but it consistently disappoints you in? You know that? Like all the things you want a day to be, but it just, it's a little bit of a letdown. The the world that God is promising is a world with no letdowns. That it's everything your heart has always wanted. That's the inheritance that God is preparing. So Paul is like, here's why you can be thankful. It doesn't matter how bad your life is. You can be sitting with Paul in prison right now. And Paul's like, "You you can be thankful for this. God has qualified you for an inheritance. Uh, picture um, somebody walking in and them truthfully looking at you in the eye and saying, I don't know how to explain it. I just got word. You have a $1 trillion inheritance. What would happen? Well, I mean, just imagine, what would, what would happen in your life? Okay, now hear this. Paul is saying what you have been qualified for is so, so, so much more valuable than that trillion dollars. You have been qualified to share in this inheritance. Priceless. There is no number you could put on this And it is the thing your heart has always waited for. That's the inheritance that's out in front of you. We're qualified, he says. And then he says in verse 13, he, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. We were in the wrong kingdom, serving the wrong master with no way out, no hope of escape but God. 
He sent his beloved son, Jesus, down into the darkness of a cross on your behalf and on my behalf to deliver us from the masters of Satan's sin and death. He's delivered you. Doesn't matter how bad your life is right now, we've got a lot to thank God for. But he hasn't just delivered us, he's also transferred us. And it says he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He didn't just take us out of the wrong kingdom, he's put us in the right one, the perfect one, with a kind, gentle-hearted leader, ruler, Jesus himself. But he hasn't just qualified us, hasn't just delivered us, hasn't just transferred us, he's redeemed us. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That word redemption takes us to the marketplace. We were slaves to our sin. But through the life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has purchased us out of our slavery and given us all sorts of new freedoms. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's a, it's a good way to wrap this moment up in this letter. There's a story from the pre-Civil War days before American slavery and just all of its atrocities and evils were ended. It was before American slaves were free, where a northerner went down into the south and he showed up at a slave auction. And there he purchased a precious young woman. And as they were walking away from that auction, the man turned to her and said, you're free, you're free. And she looked back just in amazement and said, you, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yeah, you're free to do whatever you want. You, you mean I'm, I, I'm free to say whatever I want? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're free to say whatever you want. You mean I, I'm free to be whatever I want? Yeah, you are free to be whatever you want. You mean I'm even free to, to go wherever I want? Yes, you are free to go where you want. And then she looks back up at this man and says, well, I guess I'll just go with you then. And that is a picture of our life with Jesus. He's come and redeemed us. He's, he's purchased us out of our slavery, welcomed us into all new freedoms. And now with a thankful heart, we just get to look back at him and say, well, where else would I go? I, I wanna go with you then. I want to spend my days with you. I want to spend my life with you, oh Jesus. May it be for us. Will you bow with me? I'll give you just a moment there for the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful to wipe away the things that wouldn't be this morning. Maybe just there where you are, I can ask Jesus, what do you want to say to me today? What is it that you want to show me today? How would you want me to respond to you today? And for some of us, that moment of response today, that, that moment of response is God saying, I, I want you to, to, to 
move toward me in faith, to lean your whole life upon me. That's what I want for you today, to take that first huge step of faith toward me, to hold up your life and to say, God, I am trusting in the person of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Here's my life. Save me, oh God. And God would love to meet you there, to rescue you out of slavery, to qualify you, to deliver you, to transfer you, to redeem you this morning. He would love to do that. So just call out to him there where you are. And for the rest of us, oh, that we could become a person who praises others and prays for others. So God, would you help us? God, would you make us into these type people? Through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, oh God, would you, would you conform us into the image of Jesus? May, may we imitate Paul as he is imitating Jesus. Oh God, help us. Help us, oh God. It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.